Hey, before we get into the message today, I want to speak about something that I addressed last week as well. I want to talk about what's going on in our nation. And I'm going to be very blunt. Racism is contrary to the message of Jesus. Racism is contrary to the mission of Jesus, of love God and love people. Racism is contrary to the very heart of God himself. Like, like God, Jesus laid down his life for humanity. And any person, any race, stands on equal footing at the cross of Jesus. And we as a church need to search our hearts and our lives to see if our beliefs and our behaviors line up with this high calling of God. The orchard stands against racism. Our vision of love God and love people is all people, no asterisks. This means we are called to walk the talk and actually love all people, all races, all genders, all types, all beliefs. Today at noon, we're going to be gathering at the church to pray for our nation to repent of any racism that we have culturally been a part of, to, to pray for healing on our nation's deep wounds, to pray for justice, to pray for peace, to pray for redemption, and, and to pray for God to bring us to a new unity, a new place as a nation. Because the reality is the church hasn't always been on the right side of history. I was reminded of this as I researched this week's topic, and I read the history of the atrocities of the church throughout history. And I have to tell you, it's a longer list than any of us want to admit, and it's painful to read. In the name of the church, some terrible, egregious things have taken place that grieved the heart of God. I read that history, and I just prayed, God, please forgive us. We repent. And this comes into play with today's message, and it starts with the question, what do you think of when you think of the church? Probably a building. Most likely it's a room, a steeple, or a Sunday time and place. But for many, their experience has been a lot more painful. As a pastor, I have a lot of friends who have encountered the church and decided they want nothing to do with the God it represents. Brendan Manning wrote that the leading cause for people to reject God isn't God. Listen to this. He says the leading reason people reject God is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out of church and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I don't blame them. Today we're going to look at, into what the church actually is and is not. And the first thing I want you to know about the church is that the word isn't even in the original Bible. Not once. In fact, the word church didn't even appear until the Goths of 300 AD. And, and not the black eyeliner Goths who write poetry about how much their daddy doesn't love them. No, no, no. The Goths who conquered much of Europe. Those Goths. The word church didn't come around until hundreds of years after Jesus. And there's a strong argument to be made that, that the word church shouldn't even be in our English Bibles at all. So let's dive in and look at this thing that, that we call the church that Jesus never mentioned. It starts in the Old Testament, uh, back when there was a tabernacle, a, a temple, if you'll remember. God's presence in that time resided in a building. Then Jesus died and rose again, and, and the presence of God left the building. And last week, we looked at Acts 2 and discussed the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And, and Pentecost was an incredible moment, the moment God changed his, his address. You see, he had a 1,200-foot temple 
built to the last millimeter according to his specifications in the Old Testament. It was awe-inspiring, coated in gold, just the most beautiful building you could imagine. But God looked at the hearts of his children and said, I want to live there. And he chose the beauty and the mess of living within imperfect people over that staggering, perfect building. From that time on, God did not dwell in a place. God's presence would dwell in a soul of any person who gave their heart to Jesus. And that has a whole lot to do with what we call the church. Did you know that the church was Jesus's idea? It gets so tangled up with, with humanity, but the original idea is Jesus's. He launched it. He intended it. He loves it still. So what is exactly that Jesus launched? I mean, when we think of church, we think of, of this building and we think of it on a Sunday for one hour. The fact has become more obvious over these past weeks and months, though, haven't it? As we've thought about what it means to, to go to church while we're sheltering. But what we think about the church is vastly different than those original Christians, those original disciples would have believed about church. You see, because the church that Jesus had in mind, it, it's, it's the church he launched in Acts 2. It didn't begin as an institution. They didn't start out with any real liturgy. They didn't come with a bunch of symbols. They had like no traditions. Contrary to many of your hopes, they didn't sing hymns back then. There was no praise band. There was no Christian radio that always kind of sounded, you know, 10 years behind the rest of the radio. There was no passing the plate for offering. There was no coffee in the lobby. There wasn't even a Bible the way we think of it in these early days. There weren't any of these things. There weren't any buildings, no facilities, no staff. From the first jump, the church, from the first jump, the church began as a movement. And it began as a movement around a very simple idea. Here's a little history. Whenever you run across the word church in your Bible, it's a translation of a Greek word. And the Greek word is ecclesia. Say that with me. Ecclesia. Very good. I, I can hear you and see you through this, by the way. All throughout the New Testament, you see this little word ecclesia. It simply means a gathering, a people, a congregation, an assembly, a group, a crowd, a squad, a team, a people. Ecclesia, the word Jesus used, is a people. So when Jesus launched the church, he launched it as a people and a simple yet powerful mission with a singular focus. This was his original, like original holy intent for the church. A people who would continue the movement of redemption that he himself started. But then, then something terrible happened. Something tragic happened to, to what we think of as church. You see, as time went on, there was this, this transition from this, this living movement to a location, to a monument. From a community of equals to like a hierarchy of powers. From a dynamic message around a, a central event in history, the resurrection, to a complex system of hoops and, and red tape and ritual and tradition. What's fascinating is that the tradition this, or this transition wasn't like a leap forward. It, it was a big step backwards. It looks more like the Old Testament model that Jesus came and fulfilled and left behind. It looks more like the Old Testament than Jesus's movement. You see, tragically, at somewhere in our history, the church went from a people back to a place. But then, 
things began to shake up. In the 16th century, there was a scholar named William Tyndale. He burst onto the scene. And William Tyndale was an author and a linguist. And he decided it was time for the average person to have access to God's word, the Bible. It's something that hadn't been done before because only the special priesthood could, could access the Bible. And people would go to church and sit there and listen to a, preach, a priest read the Bible in a language they didn't know. In Tyndale's era, no one had access to a Bible, not the common people. He desired that the people of his country needed to have access to the truth of God's word. And so he began to translate it into English. And his copies began to get circulated thanks to Gutenberg's printing. And guess what? Can you imagine how happy the people were, were about this? Could you imagine how happy the church is and the leadership? Finally, Tyndale comes along and, and he's letting all of our congregation read God's word. What a blessing. Unfortunately, they were not happy about it at all. Tyndale became an outlaw. He was a, a Bible bootlegger. He had to leave England and he fled to Germany where he continued to do his translation work. And he was eventually betrayed by a friend and he was brought back to England, tried as a heretic, and they hanged him. And then after he died from hanging, they burned his body as an enemy of the church. But it was too late. You see, because of Tyndale's work, the word was out. For the first time, people could read God's word in their own language. Now, what does this have to do with church? Well, one of the things that led to Tyndale's arrest and execution centered around this very word, church. When Tyndale got to the little Greek word ecclesia, he didn't translate it church. And, and, and the church wasn't happy about this. He translated it to congregation. He didn't make the word a location. He rightfully made the word a people. All this to say, do you see how culturally we have been immersed to believe and behave that, that we're not really involved in, in church unless we are going to church? Now, all that said, I'm not going to try to undo centuries and layers of tradition right now in one sermon. That's, that'd be nice, but I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do that. You see, we can still use this word church. It's a cultural word. We'll use it. But I want us to think of it differently. We, need to, we don't need to change the word, but we do need to change our perspective of it. In fact, let's look at the verse where Jesus first discusses launching the church. It's in the book of Matthew, verse 15. He gathers his, his disciples around him and, and begins to have a discussion. He's speaking with them about his identity and his divinity. And he asks them this question. He says, what about you? He asked his disciples. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a powerful moment. And, and Jesus refers to the church here. And it talks about the power of it. And, and you know what word Jesus uses in reference to, to the church that he's going to build? Ecclesia. He replied in verse 18, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. 
I'll build my, my building. I'm going to build my steeple. I'm going to build my, my church service. I'm going to build something with handshakes and four songs and a sermon and then an offering. And I mean, what is Jesus saying he's going to build? He says, I'll build my ecclesia. I'm going to build my people. I'm going to build a movement. You see, and these people and this movement, Peter, the gates of death, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades itself will not be able to, to overcome my movement, my people, my ecclesia. I mean, it's hard for us to shake the old paradigm. We've got to admit it. We just culturally say, I go to church. We rarely say, I am the church. That'd be kind of a strange answer to some people. What I'd love for us to shift to is if someone ever, ever asks you like where, what location or when you go to church, that we would respond, I'm part of the orchard. Like, like that's, that's, I'm part of that. Because God left the monument to spark this movement. These walls, this worship center, the gathering center, this building, the presence of God doesn't live here. It, it lives here deep in our spirit. You see, it could be that I was, you know, I was raised a pastor's kid, and that really helped me realize this. A pastor's kid growing up in Redstone was a unique opportunity compared to a lot of pastor's kids around the nation. You see, our church building wasn't all that special. We had church in, in some of the strangest of places. We never really had a building until the end, and we had a church in a little house on the prairie schoolhouse one winter that ran on generators. We had it in a fire station with the, the heater so loud you couldn't hear the preacher, so you would turn it off for the sermon, and you had blankets and hats. We had church in a jazzercise here in Carbondale on Main Street, and eventually we had church in the high school that I attended, and nothing reinforces that the church building isn't special than going to church six days a week, five for school and one for Sunday school. I mean, I knew that that building wasn't special, that God didn't just say, this is my temple, Roaring Fork High School. But the church has evolved in meaning, obviously from Jesus' point of view in Ecclesia to what we have now, and even from Tyndale. And what I want us to do is go to Acts 2. We, we touched on it last week. I want to continue in Acts 2, in verse 42, because it talks about the, the genesis, the beginning, the start of Ecclesia, of the church and what it was supposed to look like, what it did look like, and what it can look like. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now we see right away that they, they devote themselves to four things. This is right after Pentecost. The Spirit has come. The, the, the church has been launched, and this is what they're doing. The first thing they do is they, they devote themselves to four things. To the teaching, which is the truth. They devote themselves to the truth to fellowship, which is the community. They devoted themselves to, to learning the truth and they, they devoted themselves to loving one another. Learning the truth and loving one another. The last two things they devoted themselves to were breaking of bread. This refers to both communion and to intentional relationships. And prayer. They devoted themselves to their relationship with God. I mean, these four things sum up what it means to love God and love people. They're, they're vertical and they're horizontal. And these four things they devoted themselves had big results in their lives. Let's read in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed 
They saw miraculous things happen. God showed up and did what only God could do. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. I mean, here we see that they loved each other more than they loved themselves. One of the mark of a changed life is supernatural generosity. And we see them here. They viewed their possessions not as idols, but as, as things to, to give away or to, to sell and use the money to, to grow and love those around them. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The temple courts, the outside of the temple. And then they came together in homes and they shared meals and, and they shared their hearts. They did life together. They, they did church together. And many historians take this to mean, because it gives all these different locations, that, that they met together, they, they met when, whenever and wherever they could, based on how many people were there. This big group, little group, medium group, outside the temple, inside the home, most likely wherever they could meet with whoever was there. Verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I mean, they, they just had a blast doing it. This is how church should be, loving God, loving one another, and having a lot of fun along the way. I mean, does that describe church to you? Hopefully it describes us as the orchard, but we need to do better, don't we? Maybe it doesn't describe the church that you grew up in, or maybe you were wounded by church, and you're like, this sounds nothing like anything I've known. But they had a blast doing it. There's nothing like doing what you love, for who you love, with who you love. And they were experiencing that. They were having daily meals and, and meetings and laughing, gathering in large, medium, and small groups. And it ends with this final result in, in, the next, in that verse. What's the final result of their lifestyle of pursuing God and pursuing each other? It says this, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, every day somebody would join this movement. Every day someone was coming to salvation and, and, and becoming a part of their community. And the, and the danger is, you know, when, we, when these things listed here in Acts 2, when they're absent, well, the movement that Jesus intended, it, it just comes to a halt. And sadly, the movement that, that Jesus launched morphs back into a monument. A monument is when the movement of God grinds to a stop and the people view it as another temple a special, a sacred, holy location, place. A monument is when people unwittingly hope God will go back to his old ways of residing in a building so that we can go to the building and fill up. It's a group of people who identify themselves with a structure more than a savior. A movement is where religion is stagnant inside the four walls when it should be active outside the walls. A monument is where faith is, is pulled out on Sunday, but, but tucked away on Monday. A faith that prefers like ritual instead of redemption. A monument happens when we choose religious activity with God over, over relational intimacy with God. A monument is created when our, our preferences about like worship music become more important than who we're worshiping. You see, when the movement grinds to a halt in a monument, when we view church as a place, that's when Bibles and faiths and testimonies gather dust. I mean, a testimony is a story of what God's doing. 
Do you have a fresh story of what God's doing? I, w- I want more stories. I want more testimony. You see, in a monument, attenders get complacent, don't take, don't take risks, and get comfortable. They choose comfort over obedience. And God may ask the people of a monument to step out or step up, but sadly, oftentimes their attendance is the greatest achievement of their spiritual life. You see, movements die out and turn into monuments. And monuments slowly lose all effectiveness and become culturally and spiritually irrelevant. And I think we can admit in our culture that the church is in danger of just being culturally irrelevant. And it could be is that the movement that Jesus ignited has become a monument, a location, a place. You see, if a church does not have the Holy Spirit active in their midst, it becomes a monument, plain and simple. Monuments and movements are vastly different. Listen to this. A monument requires a building. A movement requires a believer. A monument success is when the room is full, but a movement success is when the revival is fueled. A monument is like a country club pool where only the members are allowed in, and you need to talk like they talk, and and you need to look like they look, and kind of all be the same. But see, a movement is like a rocky mountain river. It, It just gives life wherever it flows, recognizing that God created diversity, that we look and talk and we prefer different things and that's okay. And we come together in unity under Jesus. Unity doesn't mean agreement. We don't have to agree on everything, but we are unified under the main thing and that's Jesus. A monument lulls us to spectate, but a movement calls us to participate. A monument empowers those privileged few, but a movement is powered by the passionate many. A monument hoards what we have in the room. But a movement, well, it takes what's in the room outside to the world. A monument, at the end of the day, is a religious institution, while a movement is a spiritual revolution. Jesus died and resurrected and started one of those. And I don't think he's too impressed with the other. Orchard, we've been given a gift these past three months, if we're honest. We learned that just because the building is closed, it doesn't mean that the church isn't active. We are ecclesia. The church is a people. The church is a movement. We don't reopen the church up because the church was never closed up. Many of you have, have taken your faith to new places these past months because it's kind of been on you in a new way. And the movement gathers steam and momentum when individual believers come alive. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, man, I wish the church would do something about this? I have a lot of well-intentioned church folk call me and and they say, you know, something like, I saw trash on the side of the road and I thought the church could go and do something about it. And I always want to respond, well, what did you do about it? I mean, you're a Jesus follower. You are the church. What do you do in a situation? What what you do in a situation is what the church is doing in that situation. The next time you see a need and you think, man, I, I bet the church could really help this person out. I bet the church could really help this situation out. 
perhaps reframe it and ask, God, how would you like me as your church to respond right here, right now? Because see, when you move, the orchard moves. When you love, the orchard loves. When you serve, the orchard is serving. Because in Jesus, you, we, we are the church. We are ecclesia. One of my friends, John, he's a bold believer in this truth. He gets this. And so, so during the last three months, now and then, he, he walks out of his front door here in Carbondale, and he just heads toward Main Street. Every house he passes, he prays for it. Every business, he prays for them. And he asks God, he goes, he goes God, lead me today. Who should I talk to? And he'll feel a prompt, or he won't, but he'll just keep walking. If he feels a prompt, he'll stop and talk to somebody outside of a coffee shop or outside of a restaurant, or God might put something on his heart and he walks through the town just giving out encouragement, telling people he'll pray for them, praying for people, not just saying it, doing it, telling people God loves them, calling people to God's kingdom, asking how, how he can be a help to them. And, and you know what? As, as John does this, the church advances. On that walk, the orchard's active on Main Street. And as you, as you go and serve food or serve the needy or, or speak life or give generously or whatever you do what God is asking, the church is active. The orchard is active at that moment right there. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my people. I will build my movement and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Our founder states that we have power, mighty power, his power. Our founder states that, that evil will not overcome us. He calls us out of our regularly scheduled faith programming to, to courageously step into his original intent for the church. That wherever you are, you are the church to somebody. Orchard, our, our church has grown this past three months. Our ecclesia has gotten bigger. We've had many people give their life to Jesus. We've had many people re-engage in faith. We've had more movement, more advancing in the past three months than we've had in in quite a while. And I know it's been hard not to meet together as we've been traditionally so used to, but, but the church has not lost ground. We weren't overcome during these last months. The Bible promises that even the gates of hell can't overcome us, let alone a, a three-month shelter in place. A pandemic can't overcome the church. On the contrary, the church has advanced during this time. As a pastor, I, I long to tell you, we need to have just a testimony time. We need to tell you some stories, interview some people. I can't, I can't wait for some of these moments for you to meet new people in our area who have, who have engaged in faith. And then all the people nationally who are, who are right here listening with us. I don't know what the future holds. I know we'll be back in this building at some point someday with no regulations. I don't know when. And that's going to be one of my favorite days of all time. But until that day, we've been given a gift through this season to, to shift our paradigm, to see the church as it was intended to be. That we don't go to it. We don't attend it. We are it. I am the church. You're the church. We are the church. We are the people who, who devote ourselves to truth to community, to communion, to prayer. And if we do these things and, and activate our, our faith outside of this building, then we're going to see revival. We'll see a spiritual awakening if we activate the movement of Jesus in our lives outside of this building. Spiritual awakening happens. And on that day, 
Just like in Acts 2, we're going to see this. And God will be adding to our numbers daily those who are being saved. May it be so. What a gift this has been that we can be active out, out there and see God move in a new way. The gates of hell can't stand against our movement of love. A pandemic can't stand against this, can't overcome what Jesus is doing. And so, so Orchard, it's, it's time to get moving. If you're a part of a movement, there's one requirement. Move. And so maybe your faith is still those, those old coals that need some stoking for the fire. Maybe you need to get back into God's word in a new way. Maybe you need to put on some worship and just get alone. Maybe you need to go on a hike and, and just pray out loud and listen. Whatever it is you need to do, let's realize that Jesus, he, he came here and started a movement and then he left. He left. And he left the movement in our hands. Not the paid professionals. Not the priests. Not the pastors. Us. All of us. The people of Jesus. We are the church. We are his movement. It's in our hands to take what we have in here out to the world out there. And the gates of hell, well, they won't be able to overcome that at all. It's time to get moving. It's time to tangibly step out because the reality is this. You are the church to someone. You get to be the church to someone. And, and if you hear even an inkling of a prompt to go speak, to go help, to go serve. You just take that as the Holy Spirit moving in you. And I would encourage you just to begin to obey those prompts. If you feel like go serve, go speak, go love, go encourage, go stand with somebody, go pray with somebody, go mourn with those who are hurting, whatever it would be, the church needs to be active in moving in our valleys. It's time to move. It's time to move. And through it all, we need to remember that our banner is Jesus. Above all things, we unite under him. We don't have to agree on everything, but we agree that we are united under him. Jesus is our banner and our mission. Love God, love people. I'm glad you joined us today. I'd love to pray for you right now, if you don't mind. Let's pray and ask God to, to activate us as the church. So pray with me. Jesus, pray out loud with me. Jesus, I am the church. You died, you rose again. You left the mission in my hands. I accept it, I receive it, I wanna go live it. I am your church. And the gates of hell won't stand against us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you would like any questions, any comments, you can email me personally, daniel at theorchardlife.com. I'd love to hear from you. I've been getting a lot of emails from a lot of you who are having faith movement in your life, who are experiencing fresh faith. If, if you've been moved these past months by what God's doing here in the orchard, I would encourage you to, to reach out and let us know. I've been getting emails from people around the nation we had that, we remember we stacked our stones a few weeks ago and I was getting pictures of stones stacked with rocks um, that have never been in Colorado. And it's been beautiful to see. Uh, so send me an email. I'd love to, love to hear from you and start talking with you. Until next week, love God and love people. See you, Orchard.